Hello everyone, I hope you're doing well, and I hope that you have your tea and snacks or whatever it is that you are enjoying right now. Um, I want to say like two months ago, I think so, I think in February, uh, Jittery2 had reached out to me and had asked me if there was a way to still access the Patreon episodes. Obviously, with everything that happened in March, now in April, moving into May... Um, I didn't really feel right basically saying, hey, yeah, you know, still donate to me the money that everyone else had paid in order to get access to the episode that just didn't feel right at all, um, especially with how some people, you know, unfortunately may not have a job right now or may not know if they will have one. Um, that just didn't seem right. So... I thought about it and I thought it over and I tried to figure out, you know, well, how could I, in addition to that, you know, I basically took down the Patreon page. So where am I going to put this stuff? And, um, now that I've kind of posted all the episodes that I had already pre-recorded, I just decided, you know what, why don't I just share them right now? So I'm still slightly concerned. So I'm going to forewarn you guys. The first couple of episodes that I had done were true crime. So there's a lot of death, a lot of murder, um, a lot of me being very opinionated about it. Um, so it's not the normal haunted information or spiritual information or anything like that. It is true crime. It's from back when I was really interested in true crime. And um, it was something that I watched and dealt with every single day. And I watched all the shows and Investigation Discovery was all over everything I had. I do hope that if you are in a good headspace that you are able to enjoy the episode. And I will see you guys next month. Please take care. Be safe. Especially with everything that's going on. Please know that eventually it'll work itself out. I know that sounds really hard to imagine right now. But I'm saying that from the standpoint of... It has to work itself out. You know what I mean? And while that doesn't make what's going on really any easier, sometimes it gives you a little bit of hope. So if you can't believe in that, just find a way in your own self to have some hope for the next coming days and the next couple months and maybe to the end of the year. Check in with yourself. Make sure that you're mentally okay and healthy, that you feel good. If you're dealing with any sort of depression, please reach out. There is a site called betterhelp.com. I'll put it in the show notes, but essentially there are a ton of podcasts who have sponsorships with them. And regardless of if you can pay for it, they do give you a week free where you do get someone who can help you for that whole week. And while you may need more help than that or need more than that, at least it's something to get you going and get you started. And you know that you have another way to person to sort of reach out to and, and to help yourself get better. So with that, we'll jump into the episode. Take care, everyone. Have a good night. Have a good day. And I'll speak with you soon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Haunted Ride. I'm your host, Melissa, and thank you for joining me today. So today is our first true crime episode. Um, I'm horrified and excited about it. <laughs> These will probably always be released on the second Saturday of the month. Uh, just as kind of like a, I don't know, I kind of want it to be not as, I'd say, formal as the paranormal episodes. In other words, I want you guys to be able to experience more of me. This is first off, 
going to be a very long-ass episode. It's going to be a very explicit episode, so please understand that before you play this around children. There are a lot of things that are going to be said in this episode that they really shouldn't hear, especially in this particular story today. There's a part of it that I know when I read it, I'm going to have a very vocal reaction. <laughs> and, and I also like to talk with my hands, so I'm probably going to want to hit something. I just, I hope that you guys like them. And, um, you know, please have your tea. Please have your, please have your snacks. Again, like I said, this is going to be explicit. I have sort of researched some terms to make sure that they're the preferred term to use when discussing certain things. But if you happen to know something more than I do, please let me know. I mean, that's why this is also part of a community. So thank you to begin with for being a Patreon donator. And thank you for loving the podcast. And thank you for listening to these episodes. And without further ado, let's jump in. So today's episode is about Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Tool, which I'm not sure if his name is Tooley because there's an E at the end. Um, but we're just going to call him Tool because he is kind of like a tool. So to begin with, I have to give a couple people some credit. First off, Wikipedia. <laughs> Uh, I always laugh whenever I listen to a true crime podcast and they're like, yeah, we got most of your stuff from Wikipedia. I always giggle. Uh, but it's really helpful. <laughs> it's still funny, though. Um, but I didn't just get my stuff from that. I also got it from the NBC News, the Lawrence Journal of uh, September 16th, 1983, Fox 7 News Austin, the Sarasota Herald Tribune in November 24th of 1983, and the Psychology of Interrogations and Confessions, a handbook by, and I'm going to mess up this poor person's name, just Lee H. Judge Johnson? Judge Johnson? Johnson? I, I don't know. Um, but, but the Psychology of Interrogations and Professions Handbook. So you type that in, you will see the right name, and I'm sure I butchered it. <laughs> Henry Lee Lucas was born in August 23rd of 1936 in... Blacksburg, Virginia. His father, Anderson, died. His legs were severed from a railroad accident, which is... That's... That's... Terrible. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of that happening in present day, so I'm happy that that doesn't happen anymore. I hope it wasn't a thing that typically happened and this was more like a freak accident, but again, I don't know. This is first true crime episode. I may come across somebody else who got something else severed in a, a railroad accident. We don't know. But he died of hypothermia after going home drunk and collapsing outside during a blizzard, which blows my mind. Because, like, in my mind, if you are married and you're in a happy marriage and your spouse doesn't come home by a certain time, that makes sense. You're going to worry and you're going to go out to go try and find them. So... Or call them, or check the garage, or check, walk around, just make sure everything's okay. You're going to kind of do certain things. Perhaps, I mean, if it was a blizzard and he was in the snow and you couldn't see him, and I'm assuming he probably had a wheelchair, maybe somehow he the wheelchair fell over and then was covered by a blank of snow, and then that's why no one could see him, and then he was drunk, and I guess passed out so no one he didn't hear anybody when they were yelling for him 
I don't know. It just seems really weird that he he died in like, like it sounds like it, poor Anderson had a really rough time in life <laughs> between the railroad accident and dying. I just, I I just that sounds really bad. So I kind of feel for him a little bit. But Henry's mother Viola was a sex worker who forced him to watch her have sex with clients in cross dress. Now. I don't know if Viola was a sex worker while Anderson had these things going on, um, because I would assume that obviously there were not that many jobs out there for women during this time, even though, you know, we're in the 1900s, still sort of the early 1900s. So I wonder if she worked at this time or if that was just the job that she was able to get after Anderson died and she needed to provide for her and her son. But it does seem very awkward if she is like this caring, you know, nurturing woman who's doing everything that she can for her child, that she's going to force him to watch her have sex with her clients and then cross-dress him. So I don't really paint her as the uh, nurturing type. Overbearing, yes. Nurturing, no. Um, Henry lost an eye after it became infected due to a fight. He loved to get attention by performing horrible behavior. Um, I didn't, I couldn't find specifics about what that was, but I can only imagine what he did. He dropped out of school in the sixth grade and ran away from home, which again, this is where like, as like a mother, if you're like, if you're sixth grade, you're like, what? Twelve? 12, 13? I mean, that's that's really young. That's really young to run away. And then, like, to make it on your own? And then you lost an eye? Obviously, it sounds like his father's um, luck got passed down to him. He claims his first murder was in 1951 and was a 17-year-old by the name of Laura Burnsley. He said that she refused his sexual advances but uh, he retracted this claim. But then shortly after his time, he was convicted of over 12 counts of burglary in Richmond, Virginia, which kind of goes back to that, like, well, how is he getting by if he is 12, 13 and he ran away from home and he only had one eye? I mean, there's not really too much I would think that he would be able to do to provide for himself. He was sentenced to four years for this. He escaped in 1957 and then was captured three days later and released on September 2nd, 1959. He moved to, I don't know how to say this word. <laughs> I've seen the name of the city, but I've never known how to say it. Tecumseh, Michigan. If you live there, don't hate me. I'm sorry. <laughs> to live with his half-sister, Opal. He was engaged to a pen pal, which he corresponded with in prison, but his mother disapproved of his fiance. They had an argument because she told him that he should come home to care for her as she got older. She hit him with a broom and he stabbed her in the neck. So according to him, and this was on January 11th, 1960, he said that he, because of course, you know, it's not like he stuck around. He fled the scene, didn't call the police, totally fled. Um, but later, when he was arrested, he said 
that he slapped her alongside the neck after he saw her fall. He grabbed her, but as she fell, he realized she was dead, and that's when he noticed his knife and that she had been cut. But it turns out she wasn't dead. Opal, his half-sister, who he was living with, found her lying in a pool of blood. She was still alive. Opal called an ambulance, but it was too late to save Viola's life, and she had a heart attack due to her due to the actual attack. Henry was arrested in Ohio for this, and he said he killed his mom in self-defense. His claim got rejected. He was sentenced to 20 to 40 years second-degree murder, but after 10 years was released due to prison overcrowding. Now, as I did the research for this, and, and I already know this is going to be a long episode because this document is 1,780 words. So I basically did a report <laughs> about this because I really wanted to get everything. After going through and getting all the facts that I could find and that didn't seem to be repetitive and it seemed to be like the general kind of consensus about uh, these two individuals, I found it very strange that two things seem to happen a lot. One is that they either seem to escape or get let out randomly, or their charges get to be lessened. And two is the amount of people that they seem to be able to sort of seduce and influence. It's very strange to me. And I would also like to say that this, this case... The whole reason why I decided to do this case was because I was watching Haunted on Netflix, the new one, and I was on episode two, and they were talking about um, a couple who murdered people, and they would call them strays. Case, what they were saying was so interesting to me, and it made me remember a podcast that I had listened to that had talked about this case where this couple would get what they called strays and they had children and I guess they even like killed one of the children and something like that and the whole thing and so people have been arguing back and forth about whether the second episode is actually real or not um but I personally because some of the things that they were saying kept making me think of the other case I said oh like, I think these two are connected, and I and that was what I really wanted to do for the first episode. I was like, oh my god, this would be amazing. Especially because people were, like, arguing about it, and they really didn't believe that what the girls were saying on the Netflix show were actually true, or that it was actually real. But I heard this podcast, and I swear, like, a lot of things they were saying kind of lined up for me. So, I went and I googled couples who killed people. <laughs> if I'm not on a list before for the things that I write about and all the research I've had to do for those. Um, I'm on a list now, for sure, 150%. And as I was scrolling through and scrolling through and scrolling through, um, I found Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toll. And the article said that they killed 360 people total. I was like, what? Uh, so that's why they're being done. So, so in this, so far, Henry has apparently killed... Two people. Thus far. He's born in 1936. Right now, it's apparently 1960. He's only 24 years old. And according to this, he's already killed two people. So he's he started out young, apparently. Um, But it seems like the people that he's killing, it's all sort of crimes of passion. Like, 
like they want him to do something or he wants them to do something and they say no. And he's not satisfied by that answer. And so he's like, okay, well, if you're not going to do it, I'm just going to get what I want anyway. And then he kills them. So he was, he was released due to prison overcrowding. In 1971, he attempted to kidnap three schoolgirls. And then somehow, while serving a five-year sentence, which I'm assuming is for the kidnapping of the three schoolgirls, which, why did he only get five years? Like, why is he not getting, like, a good amount of time for this? Um, he established a relationship with a family friend who wrote to him and got married, which uh, her name was Betty Crawford. But he left her in 1975 when her stepdaughter accused him of sexually abusing her. So he seems to have a problem with sex. And I kind of sort of feel like he has perhaps a little bit of an issue with women, maybe because of, I mean, I'm not a, a psychologist at all, but maybe because of what happened to him when he was younger and his relationship with his mother. He seems to really, the only person he doesn't have a problem with is his half-sister, Opal, thus far. And, but everybody else, like, unless he's directly, I guess, bonded with that person, he'll just hurt them. And he seems to just care about what it is that he wants very narcissistically. So after this, he goes to West Virginia. He had a relationship, but left after the family confronted him about abuse. It did not say what type of abuse, but I would assume it would probably be sexual because it seems to be his go-to. So, at this point, he met Tool. Let's talk about Otis Tool. Otis Tool was born on March 5th in 1947. He was raised in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, his mother was abusive, and he says this started when he came out as gay. She dressed him up in girls' clothing and called him Susan. So, I'm sure this is something that him and Henry bonded over, because both of their mothers liked to dress them up as girls. Um, his father was an alcoholic who ab abandoned him. Look, another similarity. Both of their fathers apparently liked to drink. We don't know if the other one was an alcoholic, but, I mean, drank himself into stupor enough to be basically killed himself by hypothermia and not being able to get into his house. So, you know, to each their own. He was a victim of sexual assault and incest by close relatives and acquaintances, including his older sister and even his next-door neighbor. He claims he was forced to have sex with a friend of his father's at five years old. He knew he was gay by 10 and claimed to have a sexual relationship with a neighbor at 12. I, I don't, I, I can't even wrap my head around that. He says his maternal grandmother was a Satanist who involved him in rituals as a child, including self-mutilization and grave robbing, and was nicknamed Devil's Child. So he did not have a good upbringing at all. Um, he had a low IQ of 75. He suffered from epilepsy and ran away often. He was an arsonist and sexually aroused by fire. He quit school. He claimed to be a male sex worker as a teenager and was obsessed with gay porn. Says he committed his first murder at 14 after being propositioned for sex by a traveling salesman and he ran him over with the salesman's car. I don't really, obviously I'm not saying that he, like, that that's a lie, but it seems a little strange to me if he had all these sexual occurrences and he was forced at such a young age, um, and then he also performed these rituals with his mother, or I'm sorry, his grandmother, 
and he had, you know, epilepsy and all these things. And then he became a sex worker and he was obsessed with gay porn. I find it a little strange that he would reject essentially a, a male who I guess was, was willing to pay him. Um, I'm not saying that doesn't happen or, you know, anything like that. I'm, I'm not saying that at all, but based on his IQ level, and the fact that he that he was forced into these things at five years old. What I'm saying is that, like, as a kid, it sort of seems like he felt these things were normal. So because he, he was forced at five and then he knew he was gay at 10 and then he claimed to have a sexual relationship with a neighbor at 12 and he was molested um, and involved in incest. Um, it sort of seems it, it it strikes me as a little strange that. At 14, only two years later, he suddenly has the ability to say he's not going to take this opportunity. Because I know um, when you get into these places where that's how you're treated, typically you would look at it as that's the norm. Like you would think like, okay, well, this is normal. And it sort of sounds like if he agreed to have a sexual relationship with a neighbor at 12 that he felt that these things were normal. I don't know if that's the same neighbor who also molested him or sexually abused him. I have no idea. But if it was, it sort of sounded like he felt like these things were normal. But then, of course, he also ran away often. So there seems to be a little bit of uh, like half-on, half-off dynamic here where he he's very situational. He doesn't seem to be very consistent in his personality traits. Meaning, if you're someone who's extremely strong, right, and you're very independent and you're not going to be dependent on someone else and things like that, you're going to have more of a fighting spirit in you when someone does something to you that you don't agree to. But it seems like he actually was willing at some points, actually extremely willing at some points. But it just seems a little weird to me that he ran someone over with with the car. Uh, and I don't even understand, like, where does he get that change from, hey, I like to set fires, to all of a sudden I'm going to kill someone just because he just because he was propositioned. It doesn't say he was forced. It doesn't say anything happened to him. But just because he was propositioned. And then how did he get into the car? Like, how did he get the salesman out of the car and then get his car? Did he just take the car because he needed a way to be able to, like, move around faster? You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't... All the dots aren't really connecting for me at this point. And then he was, uh... He was arrested at 17 for loitering. So this part of his life isn't really known for sure, but some people think that from 1966 to 1973, he basically just supported himself by being a sex worker in the southwestern part of the United States. In 1974, while living in Nebraska, he became a prime suspect for the murder of Patricia Webb, who was 24 years old. So in the same year, after he left Nebraska, he went to Colorado, and then he became the prime suspect for the murder of Ellen Holman, who was 31 years old. He came back to Jacksonville, and he married a woman 25 years his senior, but she left him, after finding out that he was indeed gay, he says the marriage was a tactic to conceal his true sexuality. 
again, and this is what I mean, like, it doesn't make any sense. He agreed he was gay. Like, he, he, that is what he wants in his life. So he already agreed to that. Why would he then all of a sudden want to conceal his true sexuality by marrying this woman? And he says this is the only reason why he did it. That doesn't really make any sense because he already like has a history of agreeing to this, knowing it, acknowledging it and being like, hey, like, I'm happy about it. So then why all of a sudden are you trying to hide it? Where does that come in? But uh, he met Henry at a soup kitchen. Henry was invited to live with Tool's parents. And he became really close to Tool's niece, Frida Becky Powell, who had an intellectual impairment. She was put into a state shelter by authorities after her mother slash grandmother died in 1982. And he convinced her to abscond, and they lived on the road traveling to California, where they met 82-year-old Kate Rich. Rich's family tossed them out um, because she accused them of not doing their jobs correctly, and apparently they decided to steal from her by writing checks from her account. Later, they were picked up by a minister in Texas who believed them to be married, and he found Lucas a job. But Lucas left Powell, who at this point was 15. So just, you know, for calculation purposes, like I can do math. At this point, if it's 1982 and Lucas was born in 1936, that means he's 40, 42 years old, something like that. No, 46 years old. What the hell is he doing riding around with a 15 year old girl? Like What the fuck? But again, Back in 1971, he attempted to kidnap three school girls. So, apparently, he likes them young. I still don't, I mean, I understand that she was put in a home because she didn't have anyone to take care of her, but I still don't understand, like, who was okay with that. Because Tool was still alive. So, I mean, but he also seemed to have some problems with his own, so he's probably not the most reliable of a family member. But that just, that's horrible. But he left her at a truck stop after she became argumentative and she wanted to go back to Florida. But later he claimed to have killed her and Kate Rich and he led the police to their remains. However, the forensic evidence was inconclusive and the coroner stopped short of of positively identifying the remains. I don't understand why, but okay. I guess they just... I, I don't know why that would happen. Like, I'm, I mean, especially if you're that close. Like, you're that close to identifying it. Like, why would you just be like, oh, okay, I'm going to switch to something else now. But then Lucas denied involvement. But people do believe that he did murder both of them. So this is also seems to be a thing where, you know, first off, they seem to constantly get out of prison just fine. Two... At this point, Lucas does. Tool hasn't been in, in prison just yet. But Lucas seems to constantly get out of prison just fine. Uh, he seems to be able to pick up women perfectly fine. He doesn't seem to have a problem relying on people who either don't seem to have the means to be able to tell him no, or are family members or someone that he feels like he can control or manipulate. And he seems to love to just say he did something and then say he didn't do it. Isn't that fantastic? But during this time, so at this point, he's not in prison. 
However, while he was the prime suspect in the Rich murder, he was arrested in 1983 for possession of a firearm. So while Lucas was in jail, he basically just claimed that a whole thing's happened to him in jail, um, that he was not given basically the same treatment as other prisoners. Um, he confessed to killing Powell and numerous unsolved cases. Some believe the confession to be credible. However, some believe, some believe he only stated those confessions to get out of his cell and improve his living conditions. Now, he was transferred to Williamson County, Texas, where Rangers thought he positively corroborated 28 confessions of unsolved murder and a task force was created. Uh, Texas Ranger Phil Ryan says that Henry Lee Lucas confessed to killing 40 victims in one night, sex mutilization and stabbing them to death. He says in total he claimed to kill 165 people between 16 states. Apparently, the Texas Rangers were able to link 28 of those cases, but Phil Ryan was quoted as saying he would have rather done manual labor than talk to Henry another day. So, while 28 cases was linked to Lucas, they linked a total of 69 between Lucas and Toole. Toole, on the other hand, says that he accompanied Lucas in 108 murders, sometimes due to a cult named the Hands of Death, which police said didn't exist. And he ended up in jail because in 1992, he barricaded George Sonnenberg in his house and set it on fire. George was 64 and he died of his injuries from the fire. Toole was actually arrested in the same year as Lucas in 1983 for a different arson incident. But he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. And then during that time, he confessed to killing George and he said he had a sexual relationship with him. They argued and then he set the house on fire. Um, during the trials for George Sonnenberg, Tool says that he did not set the home on fire and only signed the confession to come back to Jacksonville, but he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Now, that might seem a little confusing, because doesn't that really sound like something that Lucas would do, not Tool? Like, Tool at this point is somehow connected to arson. He's saying that he killed basically George in a crime of passion and then decided to and, and, and set the house on fire in a crime of passion. But then it says he didn't do it. And he's actually quite a bit younger than Lucas at this point. And I also found it kind of weird that somehow both of them were arrested at the same time. Then all of a sudden they kind of come together and are like, oh yeah, we did all this shit. So to make matters worse, Lucas, so Tool at this point, the, the Rangers say that 28 cases were linked to Henry, and 69 were linked between Henry and Toole. They didn't arrest him for that. They arrested him for the fire. And he just did that to come back to Jackson. But then, Lucas turned around and confessed to, to a total of 213 cases. And they actually assembled a task force to deal with the unsolved murders. During this time, Lucas was given preferential treatment. He was apparently reportedly taken out to restaurants and cafes. He was really handcuffed. He was allowed to walk the police station and jails. He even knew security codes. I don't really know if that's true, but that's what I found. So for all intents and purposes, we're going to say it's true. That's really concerning to me. Lucas said that he killed Michelle Busha, who he was eliminated for. 
He confessed to a murder in Caledonia, New York, on November 10th, 1979. The woman was later identified over 35 years later as Tammy Alexander, but I don't think that he was charged for that. He's believed to falsely confess to the 1980 slaying of Carol Cole, who was unidentified till 2015. The Dallas Times Herald investigated all of his, you know, amazing claims that he killed all of these people. But then they realized that he would have had to use his 12-year-old Ford station wagon to cover 11,000 miles in one month to have committed the crimes police attributed to him. Look, I've got a 2013 Honda Sonata. That car is a piece of shit. Last year, I basically took it in every two months for something else. But it's a 2013 car. Okay? All I put on it last year was approximately 15,000 miles. In a year. How does some... You can't put 11,000 miles in a month on a car. Especially a 12-year-old car. Like, he would have had to drive 367 miles a day. That's a lot. That doesn't make any... And then you have... So somehow you're eating and you're sleeping. You're driving 367 miles a day. And you are able to kill people perfectly fine. Like, what? But, oh, and then you also work. That doesn't make any sense to me. He was actually really widely regarded as a compliant interviewee who the police basically just used to clear up unsolved murders. But he was convicted for 11 homicides. He was sentenced to death for one which was the woman named Orange Socks. Now, I know, I actually didn't realize this was such a popular case, but it was a woman who was found in Williamson County, Texas, and she was basically not found with anything on her, except for a pair of orange socks, so that's why they called her Orange Socks. She was found on October 31st, 1979, but Lucas is attributed to that. However, on the same date, a timesheet had been had been recorded for him in Jacksonville, Florida. So I would assume that he would actually have had to have been at work in order for that time sheet to be recorded for him. And if he's so proud of these murders that he's sitting here, you know, confessing to everything, why would he bother trying to cover it up by filling out a time sheet in Jacksonville, Florida and somehow being able to turn it in, but still have made the killing in 1979 on October 31st? That, you, I mean, unless he has a twin, I don't think he could be in both places. Now, the Orange Sox murder is still being investigated. There are still people, I think something just happened with the DNA, and people were talking about it on Reddit and, like, a whole bunch of other places up till October of last year. In the book, The Psychology of Interrogations and Confessions, a handbook, these are a couple of quotes that were there that I thought was very interesting. The author said... After having carefully considered the content and context of the Orange Sox confessions in conjunction with the psychological evaluation of Lucas, I testify that it was totally unsafe to rely on Mr. Lucas's confessions to the crime. Indeed, I believed and still do that the Orange Sox confessions were false. She also noted that he had no regrets about his confessions, even though at this point he's still, like, going to be executed, had no problem with it. He said... He was a nobody prior to his arrest in 1983, and then once he started to make false confessions, all that all that changed, and he was now thoroughly enjoying his celebrity or notoriety status. So, okay, we're going to leave that there. 
and we're going to link back up with Tool and talk about how those two got together. While Tool's hanging out in jail for his arson, he is found guilty for a 1983 strangulation and murder of a 19-year-old woman, and he received the second death sentence, so now at this point he has two. Those were appealed to life imprisonment. The same thing, by the way, happened to Lucas. His one death sentence was appealed to life imprisonment in 1998. A psychologist testified at Toole's 1984 appeal and said it was extremely impulsive, antisocial behavior due to a personality disorder and a pyromaniac. He pleaded guilty to four other Jacksonville murders in 1991 and received four more life sentences. Now, what he's the most known for is the murder of Adam Walsh. So, Toole said that he killed Adam Walsh, but the police lost his impounded car and his machete. Police announced Toole as a murderer, closed the case, but did not reveal if any new evidence was found, and they did not have any DNA evidence. But in the November 24, 1983 article in the Sarasota Herald Tribune, they titled the article, Tool continues to insist Adam Walsh was among one of his victims. He confessed to the crime, withdrew his confession, but then as police interrogate him, and they basically were like, so you didn't kill Adam Walsh, right? And he was like, oh, no, no, I did. Oh, yes, I promise you I did. He, Adam's death and his father's subsequent activism prompted the national legislation to start America's Most Wanted. So this is why... Adam Walsh's murder. I mean, it's important regardless. But that show, I know, has helped a lot of people. It helped a lot of people find out a lot of things about people they thought they knew. And it was because of poor little Adam Walsh. So 27 years after the 1981 murder of Adam Walsh, police officially declared Tool as a likely killer. They say that he kidnapped him by offering him candy and toys punched him in the face when he cried to go home, knocked him out, raped him, decapitated him with a machete, drove around with his head, forgot about it, remembered it, and then tossed it into a canal. Adam's body was never found, but the head was found by a fisherman. They finally decided to declare Toole as the likely killer because Toole confessed on his deathbed to his niece, who then told John Walsh. John Walsh responded, we can now move forward knowing positively who killed our beautiful little boy. But police consider Jeffrey Dahmer to be the killer of Adam Walsh after two witnesses ID'd Dahmer as kidnapping Walsh, but detectives thought it was Tool. John Walsh said investigators found a pair of green shorts and a sandal similar to what Adam had been wearing in Tool's house. He also confessed to two unsolved Northwest Florida murders, one of the I-10 murders. He admitted to killing 18-year-old David Scalart, a hitchhiker who was found on February 6, 1980, off of I-10. And he admitted to killing 20-year-old Ada Johnson, and he said he shot her outside of Fort Walton Beach. So Toole died at the age of 49 from cirrhosis, and Lucas died on March 12, 2001. Um, I have a lot of problems with this. I don't think that they killed anywhere around 300 people. I don't think they killed 100 people. I don't think they killed most of the people that they said they killed. And I don't think that Tool killed Adam Walsh. Based on what they're saying, he only killed people out of crimes of passion. 
Except for the hitchhiker and whoever it was that he shot. I mean, they don't go into why he killed those people. But he says he did it. So, but there had to be some sort of motive. Like, there's a show on Investigation Discovery that basically says that there is, like, three reasons for murder. And it's, like, money, love, or jealousy, or something like that. If one of them's a hitchhiker, it's not money. So unless he tried to have sex with a person, and a person was like, no, and then he decided to, like, you know, wouldn't shut the fuck up, and so he decided to kill him, okay. But this, Adam Walsh was the first time they had ever mentioned a little boy in any connection to Tool. And Tool doesn't seem to, the, the, the people that they're saying he killed were all in great times of passion, meaning anger. That's why he killed them. He didn't lure them. He didn't decide, oh, there's this little kid that I've got to go get. Like, they never say that. It's all opportunity and then passion. So why would he randomly go get this little boy candy and toys? Also, where does he have the money for this? And then kidnap him. That makes no sense to me. It makes no sense. This is the first time we're ever discussing a little boy with him. Now, granted, this is the same thing that happened to him as a kid. Did he just see this little boy and the little boy looked like him and he was like, oh my God, it's me. Let me go get this like little boy and treat this little boy the same way that I was treated. Again, that doesn't match with his personality. In this, we see him being very compliant. He's very compliant. He does run away from home several times, but apparently he always comes back. Just like they say that in one of these, he apparently only confessed because he wanted to come back to Jacksonville, Florida. If you're not compliant, and I'm not saying he agrees to the abuse. I'm not saying that at all. That's a horrible thought process. I'm not saying that. But if he's not being compliant and he has some bond with these people that no matter what they do to him, he always comes back, then that goes to show that he's being compliant. Like he is somewhat... While he doesn't agree with the behavior, he still wants to be around these people. And that's why his home to him is in Jacksonville, Florida. That's why he still ends up being around family, even though he apparently ran away from home several times. So, and additionally, he has a low IQ. So yes, perhaps he doesn't see reason and he wasn't taught to look at things and say this is right and this is wrong. And so that's why he's just like, all right, cool. Like, you're not doing what, what I want you to do, so I'm going to kill you now. But that seems like a huge jump to me. Like, I believe that he killed George Suddenberg. Like, I can believe him. I can believe that because they were arguing. And then he's at Firekin House. So that makes sense to me to a point. I do not believe the salesman that he ran over with the salesman's car. Because I don't even understand how he got a hold of salesman's car if he didn't get in the car with him. Or how he got the salesman out the car if he was like, oh no, you know, like, I don't want to like have sex with you. But then he runs him over the car. What, for what purpose? Then wouldn't he have sold the car or used the car to get around? So what happened to the car? It doesn't say that he was arrested for this. He wasn't arrested for, they just mentioned the salesman. Don't, he doesn't have a name. I could not find this person's name. And no one says what happened to the car at all. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And then if he's a prime suspect in two murders between Patricia and Ellen, we're talking about women here. 
So he is like what like I would have to look further into what happened in those two murders and why did they think that he perhaps he was the person who did it. But one it was two separate ones from Nebraska and Colorado that he was a prime suspect. So either he's got really bad timing, he did it, or he just hangs out with a really bad crowd, which I personally think it's the third option. I I don't I cannot find when I sat down and I read all this, it doesn't make sense to me that he's the one who did it, did all these killings. And I also don't understand how he confessed to like 108 murders saying he like was with a cult and no one can find the cult. Was the cult a different name? And he's just like, told to say the cult is this name and it's not. I don't get it. And the same thing with Lucas. Like, what is the point of like telling these stories and then retracting them unless he's getting something, which according to him, he's having a fun old time in jail. You know, he went from being tortured the way that he says it and not having the same treatment as all the other inmates to telling all these false confessions and becoming a celebrity about him and enjoying that. His narcissism is to the core. Which, yes, sometimes a trait of serial killers is narcissism. However, his stuff doesn't line up either. Like, it really doesn't line up. And I'm sorry, like... You can't, like, I feel bad for, I feel bad for Adam Walsh's family and for Orange Fox when she finally gets the identification that she needs because I know someone out there is missing this poor little girl and never knew what happened with her and can't find her. And that's all they want is to find their little girl. I think that they basically just robbed those families of the legitimate success of being able to find out who really killed their child. They obviously know someone killed their child. Or in the case of orange socks, they don't know. But green shorts and a sandal, that's similar to what Adam Walsh... You're not saying it was identical. You're not saying that there was any evidence. I mean, I don't know when DNA evidence came out, but... But so, if he was, mar- if he was murdered in 1981, and 27 years later, Tool was declared as likely the killer... By that point, we had DNA evidence. Why didn't they just, I don't know, go find the shoe or the shorts or find something from Adam and see if it linked to Tool? Like, I understand that that's really hard to do. But if he, like, apparently raped this poor little boy, I would assume that he left some sort of evidence on him. Especially if you're saying that this person has a horribly low IQ. Why would he know to clean up after himself? How would he know what to do? Like, that's where, like... These things don't make sense to me. What happened to the machete? How did you lose his car, police? Like, what the fuck? What happened? This case, as I looked into it, and I was going through it, I was just like, this is like, this is a bogus fucking case. It's a bogus case. The police just used him as a scapegoat to clean up some murders, or clean up some open cases. But you rob those families of that answer, of... This is the person who killed my family member. Like, this is the person who killed my blood that I loved. You robbed him of that. By just sitting here going, eh, you know what? He wants to confess to him. So, sure. We'll just bring him apparently some fucking coffee from a goddamn cafe. And then he'll be good to go. Like, no. What the fuck? In today's day and age, if I found out, which, who knows? Maybe police do it. I don't know. But if they just, like, let police, like, bring inmates outside without handcuffs, gave them security code access, apparently, and let them walk around in a restaurant or cafe, I would be seriously concerned about our state of police. Like, what the fuck? No. 
And and I I honestly like in this entire thing, my hero is the Dallas Tribune. The fact that they were like, nah, couldn't have happened, guys, because he couldn't have driven all that on his peed up 12-year-old car and somehow not have any issues with the car, never have it break down where he like for this entire month that he's doing all the shit in it. Like, it just, it doesn't make any sense. So I do believe that, I think that Lee Henry Lee Lucas, I think that he did kill his mother. I wouldn't be that surprised if he killed Rich and Powell. But um, I don't know about the other people. I don't know. So yeah, I'm going to give Henry Lee Lucas, his mother for sure. Probably this Laura Burnsley person, he probably did kill her too. Because he does seem to have a problem when somebody says no to him. So that makes sense to me. And he does seem to have a thing for schoolgirls, so I would agree with Powell and Rich. But for Otis, I think he killed, at most, Sonnenberg. I don't think he killed Patricia Webb or Ellen Holman. I think he just had a horrible thing for being around the wrong people. And I would really love to know, like, why was he a prime suspect in those murders? And as far as the other murders, the Michelle Bushna and Tammy Alexander, I don't know if he killed those people. And also the thing, too, is, like, I couldn't find any, I mean... Obviously, there's years unaccounted for, but I couldn't find any mention of Lucas being anywhere near New York for the Tammy Alexander one. And it just, he seems to mostly have been around Texas, Florida. I mean, he was in Michigan, so he could have gone to New York. He was in Ohio, though. So I I don't know. I, I think it would be up to up to you guys who are listening. What do you think? You think they did all those murders? Do you think that they did some of them? Or do you think that they didn't do any of them? Let me know. But that's today's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. And, you know, at the end of the day, just hopefully at least, even though I don't believe that they did it, if somehow these people taking on the confessions to get whatever it was that they wanted, which they don't deserve, but if they, if by using these confessions somehow it helped the family, cope a little bit more or at least have a person to be more angry with than while to the person who's no longer on this earth there's no justice at least to the family it makes it a little bit easier but um you guys have a good day don't let the ghost get you have a good one guys take care bye